Well, I don't know if you got the email um, just yesterday. This is a surprise chapter for me. Um, as you'll see on Sunday morning, and I've already been kind of pouring over chapter 24 for the last couple of weeks because it is so awesome. And it truly is. We're going to touch on it Sunday and then again go uh, more specifically through it next Wednesday. But you have chapter 22 that is such a phenomenal chapter in the book of Genesis. And you can go ahead and flip to chapter 23. But chapter 22, the whole picture of, of Jesus and the crucifixion and the sacrifice a father makes of his only son. And overlay that over Isaac and, and Abraham and that whole story as we saw on Easter Sunday. Wow, mind-boggling, amazing how, how beautiful it is. What, one more thing Penelope just shared with me today that I never thought of that was so cool. And you just need to hear it back in chapter 22 as we saw all these different things that look like Jesus. You know, from the wood of the sacrifice laid on Isaac's back to carry up Mount Moriah as Jesus carried the wood of the cross on his back up Mount Moriah and all the parallels. There was another one that is really cool. And it's, let's see, in verse 13, it tells us that when God stayed Abraham's hand, he didn't let the knife go down. Abraham raised his eyes, verse 13 of chapter 22, and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. That's interesting, because as the ram was stuck in the thicket, and this is cool, caught by briars, thorns, so Jesus had a crown of thorns around his head as well. The sacrifice on Mount Moriah 2,000 years later. So there's so much, and it's so rich in chapter 22. Chapter 24 is, <laughs> is equally as rich. Before I say anything about that, though, let's finish chapter 22, because we didn't really finish it on Sunday. And when I say we're going verse by verse through the whole Bible, I mean it. We're doing the whole thing. This little list, this little genealogy, in chapter 22, verse 20, tells us it came about after these things, there's that little phrase, after these things, that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, the lightyear brothers. And Penuel, the father of Aram, and Hesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlath, and Bethuel, just a list of great names. To be used someday if you ever have kids, those of you who don't. Verse 23, by the way, you think Uz and Buzz is bad? That's actually not the correct pronunciation. You ready for this? It's really Ooze and Booze. That was their names, Ooze and Booze. What were their parents thinking? Ooze! Get in here! Booze! Have you been out boozing up with your brother, Ooze? I don't know. Just interesting names, Ooze and Booze. But what's amazing to me is, as we read this little genealogy, it doesn't seem like it fits. Because chapter 22, as we saw on Sunday, is so awesome. You want it just to end. You want it to end, Abraham returned to his young men with no Isaac. Where's Isaac? Picture of the resurrection, the ascended Jesus. And they went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived there. You want it to stop. Okay, good. That's perfect. Close out the chapter. And then you hear about ooze and booze and Kimuel and Chesed and Hadzo and, you know, Tazo, T, and all these weird names. And it's like it just kind of ruins it. Except for one thing. All these names are here for a very specific reason. A very powerful reason. Verse 23, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. And these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, whose concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tehash and Maacah. But all these names are here for the sake of one name, Rebekah. Rebekah, who will be Isaac's bride. Interesting that, and I, don't, I can't say too much about this right now, but it all follows that important phrase, after these things. After what things? After this picture of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, after this portrait, along comes Rebecca. Now, I'm going to give you a little hint as to what we'll be talking about on Sunday. But after, following, subsequent to this representational sacrifice of a son by a father, comes Rebecca. 
so? Well, Isaac, as we saw on Sunday, is a beautiful portrait, representation, a type of Jesus. Rebecca, Isaac's bride, is a beautiful portrait of the church. The church didn't come about in history until after these things. After the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. It was after those things happened that the church happened. That the church came along, the church called the Bride of Christ. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that tonight. But something that is interesting to me in chapter 23, it just... I didn't expect much out of it when I began to study chapter 22. Wow, all this stuff. Chapter 24, Isaac and Rebecca and that story. And there's an equally fantastic portrait painted there. Chapter 23, stuck in the middle. I kind of went to it this week thinking, we'll get through that and get on to 24. And every time I do that, God says, whoa, Rick, there's something you got to see. And that's where we're at tonight. Now... Following 22, remember Abraham faced an incredible test, a trial of having to offer up his son Isaac. But in 22, he didn't offer up his son. It didn't happen. And as a matter of fact, we were told in Hebrews 11.11 that, that Abraham expected a resurrection. So even if he had killed Isaac, he just had an assumption, a faith assumption, that God was going to bring Isaac back from the dead. So even the thought of that sacrifice, though it took great faith to consider plunging a knife into his son and burning him as a sacrifice... That faith was so great, we're told, that Abraham believed God would make it all right. A trial, a test. Chapter 23, Abraham goes into possibly a greater test or trial than he faced in 22. Because it's in chapter 23 that he loses his wife, Sarah. It's in that moment, it's in that chapter that he has a new trial to face. It deals with the issue, chapter 23 does, that all of us have to deal with from time to time, or will deal with from time to time. The issue of our mortality, the issue of death, the issue of loss. I didn't understand death truly until ninth grade, the first person close to me. I was all the way a ninth grader in high school before the first, before the first close person to me died, and that was my grandmother. Blew me away. Didn't know how to deal with it. How, how to feel. How to think. How to work through all the emotions. I think I've told some of you before. The one time I literally took a swing at my dad was when I was dealing with the emotional fallout of losing this grandmother who I was very, very close to. And that was the first person that I saw die. And after that, then some friends and other family members. And I began, death began to be something I was just very aware of. Two weeks after I graduated high school, a very close friend of mine fell 100 feet down the side of a mountain, hit his head, and died instantly. How do you deal with that? I had no context for it. Nobody at that point in my life had ever talked to me, even since my grandmother's death, about how you deal with it. How do you handle your own mortality? And here we see Abraham come along. This patriarch, this great man of faith... And his wife, of possibly 90 years, gang, I mean, they have been married a long time. This woman who walked with him, stood by him, who he counted on. I was watching last night, what's the name, All About Jim. You ever seen that show? It's one of the few shows on TV that, that's clean and hilarious. It's just hilarious. And it's Jim Belushi. Oh, man, you just watch it sometime. But I'm cracking up because it, Jim is this totally... He's just an idiot kind of husband. He's very unaware of his wife. And last night, the whole show was about how he was just, just didn't notice her. And she finally got fed up that he just never noticed her. He didn't know anything about her. You know, he didn't know where she graduated from college or what her major was or what music she liked. And, and you know, at one point she said, you don't know what music I like. And he says, yeah, I do. It's, it's that really obscure, it's, it's an obscure band. It's an, one that very few people know. She goes, the Beatles. Yeah, there, that's the one. You know, he didn't know anything about his wife and through this whole show, but it came down to the end and it was a great ending because he said, you know what? It's not that I'm not aware of you. He said, you're like my arm. You're there. You're there. And it's not that I, I you know, and, and women, you may be thinking, yeah, well, that's how insensitive most of our guys are. But, but no, for, for me as a husband, the fact that Cheryl is there is huge. And I may not think about or notice, you know, the change in the hair and the, the new eyeliner and the, all the stuff. But you know what? She's there. And if you cut off my arm, if you tore out my heart, I would know. 
And Abraham, married to Sarah for all these years, is going to lose her and he doesn't get her back. God does not stay the hand of death in chapter 23. Now, I don't know how you guys have dealt with or, or what you've seen in terms of morality or, uh, mortality in your life. But I would venture that losing a spouse would probably be the hardest loss. I know it would for me. I, I've, I've entertained thoughts in my mind of losing my, my children from time to time. You know, Sometimes because I really wanted to. Other, no, I'm kidding. No, but I've, I've thought about that. My, you know, Hayden, Hayden's sick again. This is the fourth time in like a month. He's got a fever. Woke up in the middle of the night. I'm driving down to Safeway last night, you know, to, to buy Tylenol for him. And I probably should just come and woke you up, Barb, but Tim got in the car and went. But, you know, I, I think about that from time to time, but, but my arm is there. My, my help, my wife, that part of me that I almost feel like I could handle anything. She's there. But to lose her. Now, it's interesting that the statistics on death are very grave. <laughs> ten out of ten people die. You can count on those. That's the way it is. As we said on Sunday, we are all going to die. Everybody dies. With the possible exception of those who will be raptured, that I'm really holding out for, but it happens. It is a fact. It is a deal. And when we think about this, this sadness of death, especially as it hangs over this chapter. As I first started reading the chapter, I just went, oh, this is going to be a bummer. And read and read. And, and it just, you know, God opens up and enlightens us. Well, tonight we're going to talk about some wonderful hope that is buried here, if you will, as well. No pun intended. We're going to consider four things as we wander through this chapter. It's a short chapter. There's only 20 verses. We'll stretch it out. But four things that I want you to think about. If you're taking notes, this is your outline for, for where we're going tonight. Number one, Abraham's grief. Abraham's grief in the first four verses. Secondly, we'll look at Sarah's grave. Sarah's grave in verses 5 through 9. Abraham's grief, Sarah's grave. Thirdly, Ephron's gift. Ephron is a, a man in this chapter, interesting individual. Of the sons of Heth, interesting name, you'll see that in a few moments. But Ephron's gift, verses 10 through 18. And finally, we'll conclude tonight with something I believe is incredibly encouraging, uplifting. And that's God's guarantee. Verses 19 and 20. So Abraham's grief, Sarah's grave, Ephron's gift, and God's guarantee. Let's begin with Abraham's grief. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. I read that and it was funny because I had just seen a few minutes before. Uh, what's the um, Willard Scott? He's the guy who, who always on the early morning show puts up the faces of old women and old men who have made it past 100. And they're on the Smucker's jar cam. They show their face right there. You can see Sarah right there on the Smucker's. You know, 127 years old. Impressive lifetime. And verse 2 tells us that Sarah died in Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron. In the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Let that sink in. They've been together a long time. And then Abraham rose from before his dead. And he spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Well, Abraham begins to grieve. Sarah, by the way, is the only woman in the entire Bible, this is interesting, whose age is given. Did you know that? No other woman in Scripture. Now, possibly because the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. I don't know. Just doesn't want to list their ages. But what, what is going on here? Why is Sarah the only one? Men's ages are given all the time. You see that in all the major players throughout Scripture. And there are a lot of major female players in Scripture as well. Age is never given except for Sarah. Why? What reason could be behind that? Gang, I think it's not to embarrass or expose Sarah. It's to exalt God. 
It's for the purpose of lifting up God in the life of this gentle, godly woman. Genesis 17, 17 tells us, Will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? As that verse is shared, you almost hear Sarah saying, Shh, don't tell Genesis 21, verses 6 and 7, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah's age exalts God because he did the seemingly impossible with her. He took this 90-year-old woman, and, and by the way, by the way, in, in defense of Sarah as well, her age exalted her a bit. This 60-year-old woman who was desired by Pharaoh of Egypt, so he went after her and said, I want you in my harem. 60. This 90-year-old woman who Abimelech wants in his harem. 90. This must have been one fine woman. I mean, she really must have been something else to look at. She must have just been a thing of beauty to behold, you know, to be held. A gorgeous woman. And so that's, that's part of it, certainly, but more so than that. It's, it's God is exalted in what he does in this woman's life. This 90-year-old who the Bible tells us she's past childbearing. I still think that's a, a really funny verse. I love how the Bible is, is so subtle with these things. Genesis 18.11 says it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Now, I find that funny. You know, she's, she's gone through the change, and at that point, God waits and waits and waits to be exalted. To show forth his glory in causing this woman at 90 years old to become pregnant and have little laughing boy. It's an amazing story. And when you read it, you say, wow, God is good. God is to be praised. God is awesome. Sarah's age and longevity brings exaltation to the father. I don't know if you've seen the bumper sticker out there. I'm sure many of you have. It says, live long enough to be a burden to your children. Here's, here's a way that we could change that in our lives. How about this? How about, may we live long enough to be a blessing to the Lord? May we live long enough in our lives that we bring glory to the Father in the way Sarah did. Well, finally, at age 127, Sarah, like all people, goes the way of eternity. She moves past this life into the next she dies at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. And I love how the author here, the Holy Spirit, adds that little addendum, that is Hebron. Kiriath Arba. Now, people would have understood Kiriath Arba, Hebron, same place. Kiriath Arba was the Canaanite name for the region. Hebron was the true name of the region. Why do they add this little parenthesis here? Remember that Hebron means fellowship. In other words, Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is, in fellowship, which is a good way to go. It's a great way to die. She died in fellowship with the Lord. And you know, Sarah knew the Lord very well, as a matter of fact. She's held up in the New Testament as this example of a godly wife, First Peter chapter 3 tells us. We've talked about that before, how she adorned herself with gentleness and with submission to her husband, even when her husband was making stupid decisions. Ladies, even when we guys don't make the best of decisions, the truth is, and what Sarah understood, was that God protected her anyway. God took care of her. Even in the harems, he protected her from her husband's fear and stupidity. She was truly a woman of God. First Peter 3 tells us that. She's also this picture of a great woman of faith. Hebrews 11 refers to Sarah as this woman of incredible faith because she did believe. Yeah, she laughed. Yeah, she struggled with the whole late-in-life birth of her son, but she believed. But to Abraham, it wasn't just that Sarah died in fellowship with the Lord. She died in fellowship with her husband. To Abraham, Sarah wasn't woman of faith. You know, she wasn't godly woman. She was just Sarah, his arm. She was there. She walked with him through all his flaws and failures and flubs, all of his mistakes, all that Abraham did wrong. Sarah stood beside him. They sojourned together. Some of you know this. I, I have come to love 
the word sojourn. To love the idea of being a sojourner. And as it takes longer and longer and longer for my house to be built, I understand it more and more. To be sojourners like Sarah and Abraham. They lived out their life together. They struggled. They succeeded. They even sinned. But you know what? Through all of it, they stood together. It's a picture of the way I think God wants our lives to be lived out. In our marriages, for better or for worse, in richer or for poorer, until death do us part. I've been married to Cheryl for 18 years this July. And when I look back over that time that we spent together, I remember our first year of marriage, that early dependence on each other, because we moved into, we were in Texas in school. And being from California, we were nothing like anybody from Texas. And if you're from Texas, I apologize for that comment. But we were just so different. Texas is truly a state unto itself. It's like its own country. And so we were living in a, in a foreign land. And we had to depend on each other. And it was great. And, and I needed her. And she needed me. And it was wonderful. And it was good for us in that first year to be away from home. And then, then a few years later, we actually moved all the way across the nation to Virginia. That was a real stretch for us. It was further than I had ever been from home before at least for an extended period of time, and that dependence continued, that relying on each other. And as I said, as we began here, that for me to lose Cheryl would be like losing my heart. Because I depend so much on her. If I put myself in Abraham's sandals here, at the death of his wife, I feel a great loss, an incredible heaviness. Again, they may have been married as much as 90 years. You don't live that long with someone without feeling tremendous loss when they go. Abraham loved Sarah so much. In fact, verse 2 brings us to the first mention of the word weep in the Bible. It's right here with Abraham. That he went in to mourn for her and to weep for her. You know, it's interesting to me. The Holy Spirit doesn't introduce weeping at the fall of man. Although I'm sure Adam and Eve were weeping as they left the garden. The Spirit doesn't introduce weeping at the flood, though you can believe... You can bet that there was weeping going on on the rocks and high hills as the water grew higher and higher and people realized their demise. Or at the failure of Babel, as all the plans of man fell crashing around them and they were spread all over the face of the earth, there had to be weeping at the loss of connection and friendships and people moved everywhere. Or even at the fiery destruction of Sodom, though I'm sure there had to be some sense of weeping, even if it was just Lot's wife and daughters, it's not mentioned until this point in Scripture. Now listen, because this is important for those who seek godliness. For those who seek to be, like Abraham, people of the Lord. Abraham is not a picture of a perfect man. But he is a picture of a godly man. And you need to note this as you go through Scripture. With the exception of Jesus, there's only one person in the Bible that I can't find any sin that's noted in the Bible, and that's Daniel. He's the only one. And even with Daniel, there's some implication of some sin in his life. And we know he did because he was human. But every other major player, every major character in Scripture blew it, big time. These are not perfect people in this book. But they are godly people. They are very godly. And I say that to say this, godliness is not equivalent to hard-heartedness. And we need to understand that. None of you here have a problem with that, but just tuck that away in case you run into someone who does. Godliness is not about being sour in the face and dour in the heart. It's not about saying, I'm going to follow the Lord, I'm going to worship, and we're going to be happy about it. I've been a Christian for years. Years. My life. So much of that in Christianity today that I don't get. I don't get. I would think that the older you get in Christ, the more childlike you would become. The more you would just bust out laughing in the middle of a sermon at the wrong place. You know? The more you would experience and know the joy of life in Jesus. Because the further into Scripture you get and the more you live with Him, the more there is to be joyful for. And being godly is not about having a hard heart. Unfortunately, Satan works his way in the church and among us and he hurts people. And one of the saddest things to me in the world is that so many pastors I know have, been, have become hard. 
Cheryl and I were, were really good friends with a pastor and his wife in Virginia. I mentioned a few minutes ago when we moved out there, I was a youth pastor there, and we really kind of clung to them and, and, and sought mentoring from them. But after a few months of hanging out with them, I began to see that they didn't let anybody in. They kept everybody at arm's length. Everybody was at a distance. Oh, when you saw them on a Sunday morning, they were wonderful. Oh, so good to see you. Hugs and everything all around. Oh, what a great... This is wonderful, you know. But I would watch as that was as far as it went. And when someone tried to, to come into their life, to become intimate in conversation, the wall, boom, went up. And I saw in them, as I've seen in so many, that pastoring in a church often leads, kind of like nursing. You know, women who get into nursing... Cindy, you are one of the, the, you know, what's the, not examples of this, but... Exceptions. Exceptions, thank you, to the rule. This is a happy woman. Look out, because you will laugh when you're around Cindy. But pastors and, and nursing, it seems a lot of times anybody who's in some kind of helping profession, over time it gets hard. It gets hard. You see the pain. You see it all the time. People who are dying. People who are sick. I see people who come in and out and call and, and they're struggling and hurting in life. And so the walls begin to go up and we begin to get hard-hearted. And folks, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are not to be hard-hearted. A prayer that I literally pray for the tough things that we have to deal with in life, that I deal with in life, and this is something that I've said over and over to the Lord, Father, give me tough skin, but keep me a soft heart. Make my skin tough enough to deal with the arrows of Satan and the darts and the difficult things, but keep my heart soft. And you all have permission here in this room tonight that if you see me as a person who's putting up walls, to knock them down. Because one thing Cheryl and I have talked about many times is I never want to become a pastor who is unreachable or a pastor who is hard-hearted because of so many scars and wounds. I don't want to be that. I don't want any of you to be that. Because that's not being godly. Godliness is about joy. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. This is a guarantee. The Spirit in your life, man, you should have joy. And your heart should remain soft. The Hebrew word here, by the way, for weep, back to Abraham, is baka. And baka literally means a mournful sobbing. This was not just... I'm losing my wife, but I'll move on. This was a sobbing, a hurt, a deep pain that Abraham was feeling. Why is this all so important to know? This soft heart, weeping, all this stuff. Understand this, that weeping is part of the process. People have asked me the question before, why, if God loves us so much, is there death and sorrow and pain in the world? Why does God allow that to go on? Why do we have to deal with these things? Because pain is part of the process. Pain isn't just something that happened. Oh, oh, that's out of God's control. Our sovereign Lord who's king of everything, but he can't control the pain that happens in the world. He can't keep the bad things from happening. Somehow that just gets beyond him. No, it's not the deal. Not to my mind. Oh, I used to think that. But the older I get, the more I see that the pain is part of the process. It's part of the deal. It's on purpose what are you saying C.S. Lewis I think said it so well when he said the pain now is part of the happiness then what we go through and struggle with now the things that hurt and wound and, and do cause pain and trauma and weeping is part of our happiness later if we remain open to the Lord soft hearted before him he uses that to shape us and to mold us and to open us up for more joy, more happiness. Flip in your Bibles to John chapter 11 real quick. In a moment that almost doesn't make sense, John chapter 11, Jesus comes upon the grave of Lazarus. You may recall the story. Lazarus' his friend is sick, and they dispatch someone quickly to go get Jesus, get the Lord, because Lazarus is, is dying here, and he can save him. And so word reaches Jesus... And he says to his apostles, quick, run as fast as you can. We've got to save Lazarus. It's not what he said at all. Jesus said, we'll go in a few days. And he even says to his disciples at the time, this is so God can be glorified. We've got to wait. We're not going to go yet. We'll go. 
but not yet. And when Jesus gets there, Lazarus is already dead. It's already been in the grave. Wrapped up, bound, rotting. <laughs> and in verse 30 of John chapter 11, it tells us Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Martha got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, you all know it is the shortest verse in the Bible. (laughs) Jesus wept. It's not the shortest verse. To me, it's the most bizarre. Jesus wept? This is Jesus who knew a few days before that he was going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. That was the point. That was the whole idea. We're going to wait till he dies. We're going to go raise him from the dead and God will be glorified. God will be exalted by this. That's the reason he went in the first place. The reason he delayed. And now Jesus is weeping over his friend Lazarus. It seems odd. But I think we're seeing something of the heart of God here. We're seeing that the pain now is part of the happiness then. That all the humanity of Jesus wept at the thought of the death of Lazarus. Not only because Martha and Mary were torn up about it, not only because the family was weeping, but Jesus himself. He knew this was for the good. He knew Lazarus was coming back. He knew that God was going to be glorified. But it was hard. It hurt. It was painful. You know, we only see Jesus, who is called the man of sorrows, we see him weep three times in Scripture. At Lazarus' grave, at Jerusalem, you remember the scene? The day of the triumphal entry, he's coming up to Jerusalem, dismounts the donkey, looks up at the city, and begins to weep. Oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known that now the time has come, If you'd only known that I was the one coming. If you'd only understood that. And he wept over Jerusalem. The third time was at Gethsemane. When the Bible tells us he wept so profusely that the sweat on his brow, hematrodosis is what it's called, became blood. Capillaries expand and burst underneath the skin. And instead of sweat, it was blood pouring down Jesus' face in Gethsemane as he wept over our sin. Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 22 tells us, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul says not just humans, all of creation. The whole world is in pain right now. The whole world is groaning and aching and waiting. Verse 23 of Romans chapter 8, Not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Here's the reality. The pain now is part of the happiness then. Pain is part of God's process in developing our lives. And we will go through pain. Man, belief in Christ does not shield us from that. We are going to hurt in this world. But you know what? If not for my tears, I would not understand my joy. If not for the depths of sorrow, I would not know the heights of gladness. If not for the pain, I would not grasp the wonder of my healing by God's hand. And if not for death, I would not understand life. Some of you have heard me talk about my friend Larry Johnson, who was 20 years old when he found out he had stomach cancer. From the time he found out he had stomach cancer to the time he went into the hospital and never left was three weeks. It was unbelievable how quick it happened. It was in my living room at a weekend youth rally on a Sunday afternoon, laughing, talking, and saying he had kind of a stomach ache, and we got him some Alka-Seltzer. He left, and the next thing I got was a phone call. He's in the hospital. We went up to see Larry, and it was very close to the end of his life. He only, I think, lived a day longer. And his stomach was swollen up. Literally, it looked about that big basketball size it was huge and it was all the cancer that had just 
I mean, it, it, it was unbelievable. And I stood there by the side of the bed of this young African-American, extremely funny, great friend of mine who I had known since we were in junior high going to Christian camp together. I loved Larry. Larry's parents were both deaf, and so he, he knew sign language, he and his brother, and they would always sign things together in the cabinet camp and made the rest of us really mad because we knew they were saying things that we ended up sharing jokes and we'd tell us what he's saying. I don't know what, you know. And Larry had tubes going in and out of everywhere, and lying there on the bed, he couldn't speak. He could only sign. I'll tell you what he signed in a minute, but before I do, a week later at the funeral, we were weeping big time. That was one of the hardest funerals I've ever been at in my entire life because this 20-year-old brother of mine was dead. And I'll never forget, and I was one of the pallbearers as we brought the casket out, one of the guys behind me said aloud, it's okay to weep. It's okay to cry. I had been pretty strong up until that point, but the moment he said that, it all came. I'm carrying this casket. It hurt my shoulder as it was. And I began to weep over this friend of mine. But it was some of the strangest weeping I've ever experienced in my life because it, it wasn't despair. I knew where Larry was going. And as a matter of fact, what he signed to me, laying there in the bed in the hospital room, the last thing he said to me, as his brother interpreted for him, was, I get to see it first. That was awesome. And as I wept at his funeral, painful, hard, difficult tears, I knew he was right. And I was even a little bit jealous. Wow, he's there. But it was still hard. You know, I long for the day when Revelation 21.4 comes true. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things... The process, the pain, it's passed away. It's gone. It's history. And we will never deal with those things again. Now understand this, the tears of a believer over the death of a loved one, they're different tears. By the way, I know I shared this several months ago, but I've I got to share it again. Have you ever heard of this, what tears look like under a microscope? If you take a tear, put it on a little, a little plate, stick it under a microscope, the crystals, the salt crystals in tears are shaped like crosses. Interesting. Coincidental. Not. Gang, the cross is not a symbol of death or defeat or despair. It is a symbol of life. And though we may have tears like Abraham weeping over his loss of Sarah, they're not tears of hopelessness as you will see in what Abraham is about to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 gives us great hope in this. It says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, I love this, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Well, Abraham grieves the loss of Sarah, and as we'll see, he has hope in her resurrection. And Jesus himself wept over the temporary loss of Lazarus, knowing that Lazarus would have a resurrection, and not the one that was going to happen that day, by the way. Jesus knew Lazarus' resurrection would happen later and for good, for eternity. True resurrection. Believers only mourn temporary loss. It's bittersweet because our loss is their gain. But the reality is, and what the Bible says is, that when Jesus comes again, when that time called the rapture happens, He is going to bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Him. What are you saying? I'm saying that right now, they are with Him. Some of you know this, that the Bible talks about three different perspectives of where you go when you die. And we could get way into this, I'm not going to this tonight, but, but real quickly... In the Old Testament, it's Sheol, where the Jews just understood there was this holding place. In the New Testament, until Jesus came along, it was Hades, which was kind of borrowed from the Greeks, but it was this idea of, of another waiting place like Sheol, but then Jesus tells a parable, a parable of a rich man and another guy named Lazarus, not his friends here, but just another man, who are separated by this great chasm, one in torment and one in paradise. 
And suddenly, wow, so this holding place has two sides to it. It has torment and, and paradise. And so when you die, you go to one of those two until, until Jesus died. Because the Bible tells us, Ephesians chapter 4, that when he died, he went down to the depths and he brought with him captivity captive. He brought out of Hades, the paradise side, shut it down, closed it down, and brought with him those people who were in waiting down there. People like Sarah, Abraham, people of faith. And they are with the Lord. Now, oh, wait a minute, Rick. How do you really know they're with the Lord? I, I've kind of always thought that they're still kind of waiting in that paradise Hades thing. How do we know they're with the Lord? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. In verse 8, he goes on to say, If we're absent from the body, we're at home with the Lord. He's talking about walking with faith and not by sight. But he says, man, when you die, when you die in Christ, you are immediately with the Lord. You're there. Now, your body's not. Your glorified body hasn't happened yet. That's a whole other talk for another time. We'll get there. But it's amazing. You are with the Lord. Abraham understands this. He sees Sarah die. He looks around him. And look at what he says when he goes to the sons of Heth. First thing out of his mouth, I'm a stranger. I'm a sojourner here. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I don't belong here. This is not my residence. This land is your land, not my land. California, I mean, it's not, this is not my land. It's yours. I don't belong. Again, Hebrews 11.10, it's on the plaque in the back of the room. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And this is what we talked about Sunday. Don't look for the living among the dead. Stop looking for a life here. We are sojourners here. This is part-time, folks. Full-time life happens when Jesus calls us home. It happens when we get to Him. So what do I do with all this? Well, I bury my dead things. And I continue on in my pilgrimage, a sojourner, like Abraham, a stranger in this world. Folks, be sojourners until you are at home with the Lord. Verse 5, Sarah's grave, seen Abraham's grief, Sarah's grave. Verse 5, the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince, literally prince of God, among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. Interesting that the sojourner focused on heaven, living as a vagabond in this world, in this land that is not his, had so impressed the pagans that they said, you take whatever you want. They said, you are a prince of God. They saw in Abraham's life something different than the people of Sodom saw in Lot's life. Do you remember Lot? Remember what happened when Lot sat down in the city gate and tried to judge? The people said, who are you to judge us? Who do you think you are? What's the difference? Lot was investing in things that die. Worldly things. Lot was setting up shop in Sodom and, and he was trying to make his life good. In the well-watered land, the, the, the green valleys, the, the nice pastures, this was the place to be. So Lot goes down there thinking, okay, this, this will be great. I can, I can have it both ways. And he ends up completely disrespected by the people. Basically all he's after is his own personal gain. Not Abraham. Abraham in all of his years of sojourning in Canaan, and listen to this, never bought a piece of property. He had the means. He certainly had the permission. Abraham, God says, see this land? It's yours. All of it. From the river of Egypt to the great river. All, it's all your 300,000 square miles, Abraham. It's yours. Now, if I had been Abraham, I would have started buying up little parcels. Every dollar I had. God said it was mine. I've got to own it. I need title deed. I need ownership in this land. That's not what Abraham did. He just kept sojourning. Just kept moving, moving from one place to another. Building his little altars. Pitching his tent. Hanging out for a while and then moving on. The traveler. He could have bought. He didn't. And even now, as he talks with these sons of Heth, 
He's seeking only to buy one thing, and it will be the only thing Abraham ever held title deed to, Sarah's grave. It's the only land he ever bought in his entire life. Well, look at verse 7. It tells us that Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. This name, Machpelah, it's another cool name in the Bible. It literally means double doors. Double doors. There's a way in, and there's a way out. This little cave that Abraham purchases. It's not one way in and you're dead for good. It's you can go in, but in Machpelah there's a way out as well. I don't know if Abraham completely understood it, but it's, it's beautiful. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 23 verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even though I walk through, not even though I walk into, even though I purchase land in, even though I stop in the valley. No, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, I'm just passing through. I won't be here long. The psalmist also says in verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My last breath on earth is my first breath in heaven. Isn't that great? I had a conversation on Sunday morning. And the person I was talking to shared that up until literally this Sunday, he had always feared death. And as we talked about the resurrection, and as he read, and as God's word got a hold of his heart, and it was awesome to see, he said, you know what? I don't think I'm afraid of that. I know God's right here beside me. And he said, and I'm not letting go. And I said, good. (laughs) Don't. Because he's not letting go of you either. I want Machpelah. I want that place of the double doors. There's a way in and a way out. And that's the reality with the Father. Two ways. A way in and a way out of the tomb. Let's move on a little bit here. Ephron's gift. Sarah's grave is there in Machpelah. And that's the one that Abraham wants. Well, Ephron comes along and wants to give a gift. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth. Even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. What a gift. Nice guy. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. Verse 13. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, if you will give the price of the field and accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Abraham wants to buy this. This is the only thing that Abraham is saying, I want to own this. I need to buy this. I I don't just want it given as a gift. And he's wise in doing so. Look at what Ephron says, verse 14. He answers Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. He's baiting Abraham. Abraham says, let me pay for it. And Ephraim has already done this magnanimous thing. I'll give you the land. Oh, I'll give you the cave. It's yours. It's only worth 400 shekels of silver. Don't worry about that. What's that between friends? He's laying down the price. He's, He's working his way around it. Ephron's so-called gift is a guise. It's a ruse. It's a game. He's starting into the process of haggling because he does want something for that field. He wants to make a little something off of this. By the way, this is interesting. The sons of Heth. The word Heth literally means terror. These were the sons of terror. As I thought about that, I I was thinking of the fact that in, in Iraq this last week, A suicide bomb factory was discovered. You may have heard that on the news. An entire factory of belts for suicide bombs. But the frightening thing was in the factory they also found a large box full of American uniforms. The indication is that suicide bombers would be disguising themselves as American servicemen to get close enough in to blow themselves up 
right there in the middle of our guys, our girls in Iraq. Sons of terror. Gang, you cannot trust a terrorist. And this son of Heth, this Ephron, he's playing the game. He's playing the game. You can't trust him here. He, he wants to get something. Abraham is a smart man. He is shrewd. He is wise. He understands nothing bought in this world is free. Nothing given in this world is free. Of course, nothing bought in this world is free because if you're buying it, you're paying for it. But nothing given. You can't get anything for free. There are strings attached. If he took this cave from Ephron, strings attached. Abraham did not want any strings attached to the burial place of his wife. Abraham understands there's always a price to be paid. Flip over to Mark chapter 8 real quickly, if you will. Mark 8. In verse 31, Jesus is saying, well, it says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And as he was stating the manner plainly, that's interesting to me because they still didn't get it. It wasn't that Jesus beat around the bush. It wasn't that he taught so much in parables that, the, that when he died, his apostles were just like, man, I wish he had just told us. He did, plainly. I am going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to suffer there. I'm going to die there. And then three days later, I'm going to come back from the grave. And the apostles just went, huh? I don't get it. Could you explain that? How much more do you need explaining? You go to Jerusalem, die, suffer the whole deal, and raise. Yeah, but what does that mean, Lord? It means I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to suffer, and then I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised. I mean, they, they just missed that. Well, it goes on and says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Kind of strong words for a friend. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And in verse 34, it tells us he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This is not a parable, folks. This is not allegory or metaphor. This is truth. This is fact. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life, if you will become a sojourner like Abraham and not embed yourself in the things of this world, your life will be saved. Your life will be better. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus has been there. Understand, as Jesus teaches, he's been in eternity. He's lived there for eternity up until this point. And he's saying, you have no idea. You want to give up your soul so you can have a little house? You want to give up your soul so you can drive that car or, or, or have those friends or have that portfolio? You want to give up your soul for this? It says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Folks, Abraham got it. He understood what Jesus is saying here. Abraham knew he was not going to take anything from this world. There are always strings attached. The sons of terror always have a hidden agenda. I told some of you this before. It's frightening dealing with the people of Islam in the Middle East. Because in their very own religion, it's taught that breaking a covenant, breaking a deal that you've made with someone is okay if it furthers the cause of Allah. How will the roadmap to peace ever succeed when the mindset of one people signing on the dotted line is, we'll sign for now. But that doesn't mean we're going to keep this forever. Sons of terror have strings attached. Abraham understands that. But with Jesus, there are no strings attached. None whatsoever. John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world wants something back. Jesus, no strings attached. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful, he says. And so listen, as you sojourn in this world... 
Reject Ephron's gift. Don't take it. Don't take it for free. Yes, Abraham is hurting here. Yes, he's in pain. But this man of faith knows the faithful gifting of God. And that's what he's holding out for. Not Ephron's gift. God's gift. And so he says, no, don't, don't give me a gift here. I will pay for this. Read on. It says that uh, Abraham listened to Ephron. He listened. He heard that 400 shekels of silver thrown out there. He listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. And Bible commentators have looked at this and tell us that this was not a fair amount for the cave. This was much more than the cave was worth. Ephron started out high, probably assuming that he would get 150, 200 shekels of silver for his cave. He threw the price out there, getting ready to haggle, and Abraham said, okay, and he pays it. He's not going to argue over this. He's not playing any games. But he's holding out for something wonderful. And this is what I want you to hear more than anything else. Look at verse 17. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of this city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. I repeat, in all of his life, this was the only land that Abraham ever invested in. A burial plot. A cave. This was it. He never purchased, owned, carried the title of any other land, even though, as we say, God had given it to him. Abraham was just a sojourner. Now, I understand this a bit because we are mired in the permit process of our house. It's unbelievable, the stuff that the county wants to hear and know. I'm up on my, my lot the other day, tying orange ribbons around trees that we're going to cut down and green ones around the ones that we're going to keep and trying to satisfy all the requirements. And it's just, it's mind-boggling. And I would be so freaked out and so upset and so frustrated if we weren't studying Abraham right now. <laughs> because as I study this, I keep coming back to the sojourner and going, all he owned was a grave. I guess that's all right. I guess it's okay. What happens if we never build this house? I don't know. I guess that's okay. Now we're going to build a house. and God's going to provide and take care of things. He's working it all out. He knows the pitfalls, the stuff that we look at and go, how are we going to get by that? God's going, well, you're just going to go around this way. Oh, okay. He understands these things. But he wants us to trust him and be sojourners. Sojourners who reject the gift of the world. Abraham himself, by the way, would be buried in this little cave along with Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah. Rachel would be buried elsewhere, which is an interesting story when we get there. But all of these people in this family are buried in this little double-door cave in Machpelah, centered in the Promised Land. What are we saying? What is it that Abraham knew? Abraham knew this land was going to be his. He knew it. And he didn't take human money or human title deeds. He knew God was going to give it to him. What are you talking about? In, in the cave that he's buried in, that's all the... Abraham wanted one day, I believe, to walk out of that cave resurrected. I think Abraham wanted one spot in the promised land that was his that he could walk right out of. A place to be resurrected from. Because remember that Abraham was given the land not for his lifetime, not for this lifetime of his sons and daughters and their sons and daughters, not for the lifetime of his posterity on earth. God gave it to him forever. Remember? Abraham, God said, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. This land is yours. An everlasting promise. All this land, it's yours. And so Abraham puts down 400 shekels of silver, picks out a little cave for himself, and says, man, it's going to be great when the door swings out. 
and I get to walk this land again. And he will. Oh, he will. I guarantee it. Zechariah chapter 14. Let's flip there. It'll be our last passage to look at. Zechariah 14. Beginning in verse 4. And if you're ever having a hard day, just go to Zechariah 14 and freak out. It's awesome. Zechariah 14 verse 4 tells us, In that day, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will all flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yeah, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him, the holy ones, I believe the raptured church, talk about that more very soon. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Now listen to this. Centered in the promised land here. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. What is living water in the scriptures? Anyone? It's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Spirit of God. Jesus said anyone who comes to me believes in me. Living water will flow from out of him. Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Well, he says, living waters of that day will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. And check this out. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. This is the millennium, the promised reign of Christ over all the earth. This is not just eternity. Eternity's coming later. But Jesus is reigning at this point over all the earth. It tells us in verse 10, all the land will be changed into a plain from Giba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate. And from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, people will live in it. And there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. By the way, the sons of Heth, they're not going to be there anymore. The terror will be gone. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people. I'm going to skip that because that's a little gruesome. We'll come back to that another time. Verse 16. (laughs) Verse 16 says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations, now pay attention to this, that went up to Jerusalem, or went against Jerusalem, sorry, will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate, watch this, the Feast of Booths or tabernacles or tents and it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king the Lord of hosts there will be no rain on them if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter then no rain will fall on them it will be the plague which the Lord will smite the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booze this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booze tabernacles Tense. Verse 20, and that day will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all whose sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite, a son of Heth, in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Gang, what will be celebrated every year during the millennium to worship the king is the Feast of Booths. Now that intrigues me. Because the Feast of Booths is a feast that is celebrated where the Israelites, even today, the Israelis, gather together for this feast. It's called Sukkot. Is that right? And they show up there and they all build these little lean-tos. And they live in these little lean-tos all through the day. These little tents all over. Why? To remind them of the time when they sojourned in Egypt. And so in the millennium, God still has the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, going on once a year, every year annually, I believe to remind us of the days of our sojourn. 
to remind us vividly, powerfully, that we were once sojourners in the land. People who lived in tents, who moved here to there to there. <coughs> Folks, the Feast of Booths is the Feast of the Sojourner. The one who lives in simple trust in the Lord. It is so important to God that we sojourn. This whole idea of the children of Israel in Egypt wandering for 40 years. Why? So that they would trust God. The idea that during the millennium, if people refuse to come up and celebrate the Feast of Booths, they're not going to have rain. Why? Because God wants them to learn to trust Him. And there will be people alive at the time that still need to learn that lesson. God calls us to live sojourning lives. So whether death comes, or trials, or testings, or tribulations, that through all of that, we can say, I'm not here for long. I'm a wanderer. I'm a stranger in the land. But one day, the land will be ours. Psalm 91 verse 1 tells us, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, You are my God in whom I trust. And my friends, I'm convinced that day is fast approaching. Sojourn but a while longer and you will not only experience the Feast of Booths for yourself, you will see the Lord. Let's pray. God, loss is inevitable in our lives. We know that. We know pain and hardship and struggle and trial and frustration and hurt. It's all out there. It's all part of the deal. But Father, it just seems that as we look to you and consider the world to come that even the most horrible of hurts pales it softens and it's my prayer Lord just as we close out tonight God as, as we've looked at the story of Abraham's weeping and grieving over Sarah and how he handled the whole process and how he remained convinced of resurrection keep us convinced of that as well Help our eyes to continually to be lifted up, to look to you, to trust you. And to know that the day of our redemption is drawing near. Encourage us with these words, Father, I pray you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.